Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. Go, Rob. Okay. Uh, welcome back to Conspiranormal, everybody. How's your week been, Adam? My week has been dandelicious. Nice. How about yourself? It's been awesome. What What has been happening to you this week, Rob? Um. Well, I, uh, let's see. I made a triple chocolate cheesecake from scratch on Sunday. Oh, man. That nobody in my family can seem to handle. It was too much for them. So I'm now I'm forced to eat it all myself. Is that why you got a stomach virus? That's what Alyssa keeps saying, and I'm not going to believe it. That you got a stomach virus from the triple <laughs> well, cheesecake? She, yeah, she's like, oh, it's just because it's uh, it's too rich for you. It's it's just upsetting your stomach. I'm like, no, f- that. Oh, sorry, I got to bleep that out. Already, <laughs> man, we got to bleep something out at <laughs> sorry, the I'm, beginning I'm, of the show. I'm passionate about cheesecake, and she's trying to take it away from me. So you are, and and your beer got foamy too. That's why you might have slipped there. Possibly. Possibly. We'll just say that it's the beer. <laughs> now, Serafiel is here. Yes, sir. Say hello to the audience. Hello, listeners. <laughs> How's your week been, man? Uh, it's been all right. Just working a lot, trying to 
trying to uh, do some uh, research and trying to work on some other stuff as well. Yeah, what you been researching? Um, you know, secret, secret stuff. Secret <laughs> stuff. You can't tell us. Cryptoscatology. Are, are, are we bound to? Are, we, are you bound you, by you, Oath? UFO stuff? I've been catching up on the uh, our guest oh, podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we got Aaron Gullius coming on tonight. He's the uh, host of the Saucer Live podcast. And also has written several books, so I'm really looking forward to speaking to him. He's been somebody I wanted to get on for a long, long time. Um, if you guys didn't know, last this last weekend was an interesting time because we had all these marches across the country. Yeah, again, I know nothing about this. Yeah. So maybe Sergio can fill us in a little bit. About what was going on? Well, they were doing the uh, March for Our Lives uh, gun control stuff all over the all over the country, led by uh, two of the survivors of the Florida mass school shooting. Yeah, Parkland. So, uh, yeah, big demonstrations all around the all around the country. Yeah, what do you think about it? Um, what's your thoughts? I think a lot of the uh I'm 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 big on the second amendment and uh but I think uh a lot of there's a lot of radicalism in the uh in the marches um I think there's a lot of people who don't just want a lot of uh common sense kind of gun control stuff and there's a lot of people who are admittedly uh wanting to use uh, different measures incrementally and a lot of people who have an ideal of an unarmed uh, U.S. society, which uh, I don't really agree with. But, uh, you know, they have their rights to demonstrate. Uh, I just do feel like a lot of people are are being manipulated. Uh, But that's politics. Yeah, I feel much the same way. I mean, I, I... I'm conflicted in some ways in the fact that, you know, I don't know if people, I mean, these, these shootings have got to stop whatever that, um, well, however that is going to happen, it's got to stop somehow. But I feel like there is kind of like this idealism that these kids have that where they, where they will say something like, well, why do you want to get rid of, what do you want to do? Well, you just want to get rid of guns. And I don't know if it's the, quite that easy just to get rid of, just to get rid of guns. Right. I mean, and- I don't think that it's, it's it, that it's something that is going to happen. It's not real. It's not feasibly realistic to get everybody on board for that. Despite how many people marched um, against it. And it's really showing just how, like with almost every other issue, how completely divided our country is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, it, it really shows a disconnect between the people involved with uh, gun culture and the people who are anti anti gun. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to find. A, I've had a, I've come across a few people who you know just. Uh, are kind of have a, you know, common sense, 
uh, things and you know, lean either side and kind of agree on the same stuff. But I think it just really shows a disconnect between these two parts of our society. And it's a largely, I think, rural versus urban. Right. Uh, you know, and that cuts through a lot of other issues as well, of course. But this thing is, you know, really, really hot topic. Well, we talk a lot about people have talked a lot about these these kids being used for some kind of political gain or political advantage. Um, well, they're they're primed for it right now. You know, we've got right a president that's you know Republican, pretty pretty well grounded in the right wing, um, and there's a big chunk of the population that's already perturbed because of that so anything right. that appeals to the the other half of the population is going to have this this immediate like solid rally behind yeah. them right kind of an attitude right right so there's i think there's more than just guns that's going on here i think it's more i think it's more than just that um i would put it this way as far as them being used by someone uh, whoever that would be, you know. Um, so was the Tea Party, if you really want to think about it. Absolutely. They were being used by the right wing for a political advantage. And are you really hearing much about the Tea Party anymore now that Trump is president? Or really, towards the latter part of Obama, you really weren't hearing about it. But are you really hearing about it now? No, you're not. So this happens on both sides. Because they basically got what they needed out of them. Yeah, right. This is all. This is all part of the polit- This is all part of the political playbook. So I, I wonder if in a year we are going to look at these kids. Are they still going to be around? Are they still going to be as politically active as they are now? Or is this stuff still? Is it going to fade away? I'm kind of surprised with the way the news cycle is and everything going on right now. With uh, Russia and uh, the Mueller investigation and Stormy Daniels, who we were talking about just earlier. She's coming to town. Apparently she's coming to town, yeah. That, you know, because that was, that just was a couple of days ago that they had the big uh, 60 Minutes interview with her. Everything that is going on right now, that they haven't faded away into the news cycle. So I'm kind of surprised that they still have some kind of. They still have some kind of staying power. Um, but it is all political. It really is. And I think the honest, the God truth is we, we kind of got to try to stay above it because we're kind of, the people in the middle are being squeezed by the people on both sides. Yeah, I just really don't want to come across as being disparaging to the kids. You know, a lot of them, mm-hmm, they're right. just, this is a catalyst that's really just getting them uh, you know, started in asking questions and being politicized, you know, most of them probably never really uh, were too into politics anymore. So, you know, maybe this will, uh, maybe it's good, you know, for the long run. Uh, but. Yeah, and I can't help but be, um, you know, respectful of anyone that's willing to to stand up to that level for, for anything that they believe in. Um, I think if they were trying to back a slightly more realistic goal than just the outright ban of firearms, if that's, I don't, I've looked into it. I don't know if that's no, all the, there is I to think it, the, but the goals are a lot more, uh, uh, you know, not the goals aren't as stated, aren't 
radical, but I just think there's a lot of radical elements in it. And people who admittedly want to use incrementalism. There's definitely, there's definitely some talk about, you know, banning guns outright. You can see that all over the place. Right. Yeah. And just the signs and stuff people have. Right. Right. So there is definitely that wish, whether that's really what's going to happen. Well, I'm sure that the the media spin is either that or the opposite because those are the. That's all we get. That's, well, that's the dramatic sides to it. Right, right, exactly. And that's where ratings lie, so. Well, uh, I've, the way that I've been looking at it, and I've been looking at this issue for a couple, two, three days now, um, since these marches, is that what you have are people that will either say that these kids are communists or that they are, they're, they're Nazis for wanting to take people's guns away. And then you have the other side where it is beyond reproach to even criticize these kids. Like if you say anything remotely, you know, critical of them in any way, it's almost like you're you're pulling down a god for these people. So you know we're caught between just two opposite extremes <laughs> here. They're all wrong. I've yeah, I've gotten into some well-intentioned arguments lately um about about it and it it reminds me of like uh the atmosphere after 9-11 and with uh you know criticizing any kind of military actions after 9-11 you know it's like Mm -hmm. this atmosphere was created uh with this you know sanctity around whatever the administration wanted to do and the tragedy was used uh, to create that atmosphere of sanctity around it. And if you question what was happening, it was like you were. Yeah, if you, if you question giving up our liberties, then you're not a patriot. Somehow. Yeah, or, or you were, you know, you were disrespecting the people who died in right. 9-11. Yeah, you're, you're, in, this, in this case, you know, if you don't support these kids, you're disrespecting the kids that, that died. In the in the Parkland school shooting, are the kids that died in all the other school shootings, which is admittedly a real problem. Right, absolutely, and it's it's something I wish we could focus on finding the root cause of, you know, yeah. <clears throat> because I'm not a huge fan of like military grade weapons. I don't think that people should not be able to own them. I don't think that's the problem. I wish we could figure out why this kind of stuff happens more in our culture than other cultures and maybe focus on that. It could be part of it is that there's a certain uncertain, there is is an uncertainty in people's lives here in this country, as opposed to maybe European country where maybe people have much more certainty of what's going to happen in their lives here. That well, that Sergio put it beautifully before where, you said that, you know, here it's basically you just throw people into the pool and say swim. Yeah. Well, and, and we're, we're fed a lot of dreams in this country that you, you become like 16 or 17 and you start to like look around and realize that like kind of a load of crap. Right. And it's real disillusioning probably to a lot of people. Like, yeah, I, I have two kids and I've always been really honest with them. Like, this is a hard, cruel, cold world. I've never told them anything other than that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not surprised. But, I mean, I can see where, like, a lot of other kids would get to that age and they're like, oh, I'm never going to own a Lamborghini and be, like, a huge rock star, so I'm going to lash out in whatever way I can. Right. Yeah, the, this rugged individualism we have, uh, you know, it can be pretty lonely, and especially for, 
you know, we have this whole cult of adolescence too. And, and, uh, you know, it's a, can be a real dark place for a lot of people. Right. And then you combine that with, you combine that with being able to some, an 18 year old being to, to purchase a firearm like an AR 15. That's someone that like Nicholas Cruz, that is mentally unstable. I mean, all across the board, that was a failure. Yeah. That was a failure by the police. And that was also a failure of whoever sold him that gun and him not being on some kind of watch list or him being allowed in the first place to, to have gotten that was just a massive failure. Same for the shooter that was in uh, Texas that, that shot up that church a few months ago, you know, the air force did not report that uh, he had beaten his wife and that automatically yep. should have disqualified him from ever owning a firearm. Right. And But it was never reported. And so that was a, there, you know, this, there's people that are just, you know, they would just, they're just falling through people's fingers, the system's fingers, and they're not able, you know, so they, they get a, they get a weapon, they're mentally unstable, and they, they do what they do. And... So there definitely has to be some kind of definitely has to be some kind of um, emphasis on on mental health as well. Yeah, it has to go along with the gun control. You know, well, I and, get and it. I think that's the only element of gun control that we need to to focus more on. Not not taking guns away from people that are responsible. Responsible, right? Right. But you know. Also, at the same time, there is a lot of unnecessary rhetoric that is going on and heightened hyperbole, whether it's from the media or it's also from the so-called alternative media. And this is a case of this. Um, Emma Gonzalez is one of these kids. She's the one that, that, that uh, you know, the girl that has basically no hair but you've seen i'm sure that you've seen her sure um she's a cuban immigrant well no she's not a cuban immigrant her father is a cuban immigrant but several fake photos of her have been unle- have been released online and this has caused just a huge shitstorm the last few days okay so this is from the Washington Post. I don't know if we can trust this news source, but uh, you know they're probably controlled by the Illuminati. Fake news, fake news. Your fake news. Having teenagers act as figureheads for a movement has a certain quality that has not gone unnoticed in the wake of the March for Our Lives rally on Saturday. Judged too harshly, and too harshly, and you are attacking a kid who has balanced trauma with homework. Amplifying students such as Emma Gonzalez has injected optimism among liberal activists in the grinding debate about the role of guns in society. Gonzalez, 18, has been at the flashpoint of this dynamic, appearing in newspapers, on magazine covers, and in a prominent spot at the Anchor Rally in Washington, where her speech, which included a prolonged silence, lasted as long as the six minutes it took a gunman at her home school, at her high school in Parkland, Florida to kill 17 people on Valentine's Day. Gun control advocates have held up Gonzalez as a figurehead of the movement, splashing her trademark shaved head on T-shirts and viral images. Then there is another viewpoint of her of her activism. 
A doctored animation of a Gonzalez tearing the U.S. Constitution in half circulated on social media during the rally after it was lifted from a Teen Vogue story about teenage activists. In the real image, Gonzalez is ripping apart a gun range target. The doctored image mushrooming across social media appeared to confirm the belief among social Second Amendment absolutists that calls for stricter gun control measures are transgressive, destroying the very foundations of the United States. The animation bounced around conservative Twitter before it received a signal boost Saturday from actor Adam Baldwin. He tweeted to a quarter of a million followers with a hashtag reading Varwurz, the German word for forward and an apparent reference to the Hitler youth, whose March song also included the word. Gab, the Twitter-like social network that is a popular refugee for the alt-right, tweeted the animation on Saturday to more than 100,000 followers, then hours later asserted it was satire. It racked up more than 1,200 retweets. That still image is looking very sophisticated than the glitchy animation went further, appearing to be taken as legitimate by some conservative-minded Twitter users. The pushback seems to have gained more traction than the original images, although that means the original images are also spread wider. Okay. So, basically, there was film of her taken with, I think, with some other students behind her, all all girls, and she is ripping up a Target sign. And someone photoshopped her ripping up the Constitution. And it exploded. <laughs> it did not explode. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Not literally in the in the video, but right. No, it no, it no. exploded and, all uh, over all platform. all yeah. over the internet. Right. That she was ripping up the Constitution. There was also another one that showed on her. She has a jacket, one of those jean jackets that has all these patches on them, right? And on one, she has a Cuban flag on on like her shoulder, the jacket. So I assumed that, you know, since dare her, she be proud of her heritage. I assumed that since she her last name is Gonzalez and she lives in Florida, that she's more than likely Cuban heritage. That's an that's an assumption that turned out to be true. Her father is a Cuban is a Cuban immigrant who actually left Castro's Cuba, right? And they say that the meme has been, well, she's wearing the, she's doing this all while wearing the flag of a communist country. However, because apparently here in the United States, we're in an ahistorical background, which means that, you know, who cares about history? Who, who, who gives a shit about it? Apparently. The but I'll t- but I'll tell you, the Cuban flag was adopted in 1902. It was actually designed in 1848 by some Cuban revolutionaries, but designed but but adopted in 1902 when Cuba became independent. You may want to guess what year Castro took over, and uh, Cuba became a communist country. Who's in the- 1902? In the 50s. 1959. I was kidding. So there's quite a few years in between 1902 and 1959. 
Right. And well, and I, plus, I vaguely <laughs> see that point though that you know she's she's representing a flag of a different country while marching, but she's genuinely trying to do what she thinks will make the country she lives in that she obviously cares about a better place. Well, I'll say also though it's a. I guess some people might be coming from there because it is like a, uh, it's a military jacket. Well, so it's like a, it's kind of like the red, it's kind of looks like kind of revolutionary chic, classic, classic sixties, radical kind of uniform. I mean, when she, when she say, isn't that, that's kind of your classic sixties, radical yeah, uniform. I mean, yeah, and it's is. nothing now, but it's just pure. But a lot of pure image now, you know. A lot of teenagers wear shit. Yeah, like absolutely. That, I yeah. do too. I mean, you know, and yeah, plus, I, think, I think it's digging a little deep. Yeah. Plus, plenty of anti-Castro Cubans. Yeah, use represent that the flag, flag yeah. as well because that's a symbol of, of their country. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that because she has a Cuban flag, then therefore she's a communist. Right. It could mean that uh, she just is proud of her heritage. Would you see that a lot? People are proud of their heritage and their ancestry, where they came from. Right. I'd like to get a kilt, but Alyssa won't let me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, to me, it's just kind of. It doesn't hold any water. Right. Which, by the way, the other the other country that didn't change its flag after the communist takeover was Laos. Just a little bit of trivia. <laughs> so if you see any Laotian kids that have that flag. They're not communists. Then they're not necessarily communists. Okay, okay. Just, you know, just to, just to fill you in on that. But I think that there's just a ton of hyperbole. And then comparing the kids to the Hitler youth is another one that I I don't I don't really get. The that's been a meme that has been in the pro Second Amendment crowd for a while. Has been this whole the whole uh I remember going to an Army Navy store when I was a teenager and there was always be this, uh, there always be this picture of Hitler and, you know, he's doing the, the Sieg Heil salute. Right. And it says, for those who want gun control, please raise your hand. And, you know, it's Hitler doing the, doing the <laughs> salute. <laughs> that's the, that's the kind of like really just right wing, um, almost like what the John Birch society kind of, well, yeah, you're coming around stuff. to, uh, something that, we kind of touched on earlier when we were talking, like whether whatever the actual intention of the Second Amendment was, it is it, it's been forged in the minds of people through through your through the you know different right wing media, um, and whether you like it or not, now in a lot of people's minds, their firearms are the only thing standing between them and a totalitarian uh, regime and in between them and a death camp in between. I mean, that's been the narrative. And so that's unfortunately the, that's the reality you have to, uh, you you have to battle against if you are pushing for gun control. Um, 
you know, you have to acknowledge that these people think that this is the last, you know, their last stand, basically. Yeah. And that's been going on. I mean, I think it really got hot in the 90s, uh, you know, against the Clinton administration when the right wing was really on fire and the, yeah, and you had your Waco, Ruby mm-hmm. Ridge, and militia movement. That became the narrative. But then it was, that's really when that New World Order thing was going on. So it's like, yeah, the UN troops are going to come and, you know, take you to the FEMA camp. And uh, that's the only thing you got, you know. So whether well, we like it or not, that's in these people's minds. That's what you have to deal with. I mean, how, how did it go down in Australia? From what I understand, I've heard that reference before. There was like gun registration prior to the yeah. ban, and that's what a lot of people. That's what scared a lot of people. Like, oh, there just, was just a, register, and then you're okay. And then once they knew where all the guns were, then all the guns got taken away, kind of thing. There was a, uh, from what I understand, with Australia, there was a there was a school shooting, actually, I believe. Wow, that got um, that pushed along for I don't know if Australia has full gun confiscation I'm I'm not sure but you do hear about that's an, that's another thing that you hear about a lot is uh the pro sides. the pro second amendment and the um anti-gun people will talk a lot about Australia Yeah that's why I brought it up cuz I'm not really you don't, sure You don't want to you don't want to um all I know is that there end was a, up like Australia There was a sequence of events where they made people register them and then they took all oh, at least portion or certain types or something away from people. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that make the, the, you know, pro gun crowd think that every effort of gun control is incremental to eventually do that. Right. So that just feeds into it. And they use the, you know, and and gun confiscation was a big part of uh, the rise of a lot of totalitarian regimes. So, you know, they, and I'm not saying that the yeah I'm not saying that they're all wrong either. Cause no, yeah, I mean I, I yeah I understand why some people might uh, you know have those fears because that that was the historical precedent. That is what happened in Nazi Germany and most of the communist countries. I mean that's is how it went down. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw something um, posted earlier today that I'm that I'm looking for here that. Um, where they were talking about, and this was actually from an article from 2013. I don't know really what it was in reference to. Probably something, probably something about the whole Sandy Hook thing and the the push for gun control then. But it was a it was an article about what really happened in the Third Reich for uh, about gun control. And this article said that these, what had happened was that after World War I, the Weimar Republic had actually instituted stricter gun control laws. And the gun control law that is, that has always been, um, referred by the pro second amendment crowd actually made it easier for Germans Germans to get guns. Now, at the time, it did obviously not allow Jews to have guns. But Jews in 1938 Germany were not allowed to do anything. Okay? So, 
that was an interesting article to read. Hmm. That some of that is actually somewhat some of the some of that is actually somewhat of a myth or it's a misunderstanding of what actually happened. And the Weimar regulations would have been probably more to uh stop communist insurgents. Yeah. And some of it also was due to the Treaty of Versailles as well. Um some of the um weapons restrictions that were put in place during that treaty. So I don't know um exactly yeah, what what happened there. So th- there's actually th- there's a lot of myths on both sides of this debate. It seems like to me um that people just can't seem to get past about all this. And y- and you were saying Sophia that you know there's a certain amount of self-fulfilling prophecy here. Because if people believe that their guns are going to be taken away, oh yeah, then once those get, once somebody comes in to you know if we have some kind of more restrictive gun control, then you were saying that you know what you were saying. Imagine a, a, a thousand ruby ridges, like it would be like that all the time. Because you people will be you be trying the the government would I mean, think would about be trying just, to come and in with and get social media now. Think about a ruby one ruby ridge happening. Yep, Facebook lived. I mean, it, think about five or ten in a year. Just that's feasible. I mean, what what would that do to our entire body politic? I mean, I can't even imagine. Yep. See, that's why I keep thinking and, and keep trying to reiterate that. I think that that's why it's so important for our focus to be on the root issues because I think all prophecies are self-fulfilling. And I think if you're focusing on what could happen on either side, you know, either things are going to get worse and there's going to be a lot more school shootings, so you're going to keep talking about that in the media and you're going to keep planting the seeds in young minds, or you think that the government's going to come and take all of your guns away, so you're going to do everything you can to fight that, and you're going to scare the crap out of a liberal government that's going to come and take all your guns away. Yeah. Or we can figure out what the real issue is, and we can focus on that and put our energy towards that, because that's why prophecies are self-fulfilling, because that's what you're pouring all of your thought and all of your energy into, mm-hmm. and it's a really powerful thing. Well, good luck with that. I know. It's my crusade. I guess that's why Ruby Ridge probably happened, too, because these people got all paranoid Went out to the woods. They were trying we're, to get away. We're doing all this stuff, but right. but I mean, they were then they were you know messing with other groups, uh, you know, who were uh, doing the same kind of things, and they got caught up in the sting. And but because they were stockpiling weapons, going out doing the stuff that actually would uh, then have that government, like you said, come you know want to come and check w- them out. And Waco was that at times yeah. a thousand. Yeah, absolutely. And Waco was a real. Which we're nearing the 25th anniversary of that. Really? Yep. Wow. Next month in April. Oh, I'm old. <laughs> the, yeah, you think you guys are old. Shit. Um, that was a real self fulfilling prophecy, literally in the sense of biblical prophecy. Because um, Koresh believed that the forces of Babylon were going to come and try to destroy the promised the 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 prom the, the promised people which was you know his people and sure enough you know in his mind that's what happened so when you get this mixture of fanaticism 
which religious or political or both, you're going to have more stuff like that. Have you guys ever had a Waco show? We should. For the 25th anniversary? Yeah, that's it's a good coming, idea. It's coming up pretty quickly. We should. <clears throat> yeah. Get Jeff on. We can do it on a weekend or something. Get Jeff on to talk about Waco? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's he's pretty knowledgeable when it comes to that kind of stuff. Is he? Yeah. Okay. History and... There is a guy, I think, that's making the rounds about um, that actually was a Waco survivor. Oh. So maybe try to... He might be busy that week. Yeah, well, we could do it after. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, like, around the same time, you know. We, 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 could, just, we could just replay uh, David Koresh's, one of his... Heavy metal bands. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when I went to the Museum of Death in, uh, in Hollywood, they had, like... <laughs> They had all. They had all his music. They had, uh, you know, of course, like all Charlie Manson's records and like. Oh yeah. Everyone's, uh, everyone who made music stuff. Cease to exist. Do they have cease to exist? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which the beach, which the Beach Boys later recorded, as cease to resist. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, the world gets crazier and crazier every single day, man. But uh, hopefully Stormy Daniels, she'll she'll save us all, right? Oh. <laughs> Who knows what kind of if if the uh, if if she uh, and her lawyers get get their way? Who knows what what bomb she's going to drop? Yeah, I know. I know. Man. That's the other thing that could get fairly serious here, and. The thing is, everybody's that so many people are out there to say, "Well, just impeach Trump, impeach him, impeach him." You realize how much more that's going to paralyze the country. I mean, it's not it's not going to be pretty. You honestly think that he's going to go down without a fight? I seriously doubt it. I seriously doubt it. I can see it getting real ugly. Well, yeah, it will get real ugly real quick. Yeah, yeah, it would. But- Maybe even socially too. Yeah. Well, look what we had, you know, what we've had recently. Uh, you know, I could see, think about even larger type of, you know, Charlottesville situation, you know, people mm-hmm. on both sides out in the streets, you know, Americans fighting each other, some of them armed. I mean, that's the nightmare scenario, I think. Yeah. That could kind of happen. I was worried about it happening last year, you know, but. Yeah. I mean, through those last couple of years of Obama, I was worried about it, too, because you saw a lot of that. Yeah. Um, especially with the Black Lives Matter, that those those struggles that were going on and uh, cops getting shot. And, uh, yeah, it's just just cra- just just all the crazy shit that was going on you know, Baton Rouge and uh, Dallas and. And there's all these uh, self-appointed paramilitary people just showing up at the demonstrations to keep peace, but they're just walking around with guns uh, and. Well, did you see that could have gone south? Yeah, you saw the. Did you see some of the pictures from? Yeah, from these, these rallies, the, these guys carrying these AR-15s around little kids. You and know, I mean, it's just, they're just—they're not doing anything to help themselves with that. I mean, so no, like, come not. on, like. They 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 look really bad doing something like that. All right, well, let's break it off here, and uh, we'll go to the guests, and we'll come back on the other side. I'll have a maybe one more story to read. So, 
Guys, uh, we're going to talk to Aaron Gullius, the uh, producer and host and creator of the podcast, The Saucer Life. And we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, guys, we are here on Conspiro Normal, and we have the guest on the line. And this is a guest that I've been wanting to get on for a while now. And the first time I heard Aaron Gullius was actually the first time I heard Where Did the Road Go? And that was one of the, uh, I think, the 378th part of the uh, <laughs> UFO <laughs> the UFO history series with Mike Cleland, which we're going to have Mike on here in a couple episodes as well to talk about his new book. But uh, Aaron has a podcast called The Saucer Life, which I highly recommend. And um, Aaron, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. It's, it's awesome to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I would like to know just a little bit about your background because I think that you know you have two interests. Uh, well, probably more than that, but two that I know <laughs> of. Uh, one is UFOs, and the other is history. And I got to talk about like how you kind of combine those two. Okay. Yeah. I um I teach uh, I teach history at uh, at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan. So that sort of history is is my is my profession. Um, it's actually interesting that you call it an interest because, um, people assume that since I teach history that I just like read a bunch of history books all the time. And I, I don't because it's too much like work a a lot of of times. Um, but, uh, no, I, 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 I still love it. And, And actually what I find is that I, I enjoy history, but what I love doing and sort of as, as far as a calling goes, it's it's telling stories and teaching and explaining and, and, and helping people, you know, understand how things happened. And um, and, and history just happens to be the subject that I, I, I do well at that. So so history teaching and at the college about 39 other sort of pseudo semi-administrative, uh, things that, that, that are not very fun at all. Um, and, uh, and then some, some freelance writing and, and editing and things on the side. Um, as far as my other interests, I, uh, and this sort of ties in, in graduate school, my, uh, my master's thesis was on UFO belief during the cold war, basically from 1947 up until the Condon report or so in, um, in 1969, 1970. So when I, you know, finally got teaching and, and, you know, had, didn't a long time without writing anything because suddenly I didn't have to, you know, for classes, I, um, I decided to take a chance and, and, and write a book about, about contactees, UFO contactees from, from the fifties, really to the, to the present sort of expand my, uh, my master's thesis. And, um, and that was, that was fun and I enjoyed it. And, uh, then, you know, that followed that up with a book, um, called the, the 
Paranormal and the Paranoid, which is sort of a study of um, paranormal and conspiracy theory-based TV series from the 1990s, Mm. uh, sort of a a media studies sort of thing. And then a book about conspiracy culture, and then – and and then – some, oh, a book of essays called The Chaos Conundrum um, that uh, that sort of delves into some UFO stuff and some some other paranormally type things in sort of more of a, a, a less footnote heavy way. And uh, and then a, a book about using um, public service films and newsreels in the history classroom just because I, I felt like I needed to do a book that had nothing to do with anything weird. <laughs> and it was just, it was just, it was sort of a, sort of a credibility thing. It's like, ah, I really should, you know, have somebody publish a book that I write that has nothing to do with any of this. Just so, just so people at work don't think I'm too strange, but, um, but I've always been, I say always been interested in this stuff. I've been interested for a very long time since, since I was a kid and, um, got a book from the, you guys remember scholastic book club and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, I remember order, that. Order, order books at school. Um, there was a, a book that I think my friend and I actually owned it jointly because we didn't have enough money for the $3 book, but it was, <laughs> uh, so we, 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 there's a bunch of books that we sort of shared. It was weird. Um, he has them all now, I think, but, um, it was <laughs> called the world's most famous ghosts by Daniel Cohen. Okay. who wrote a bunch of kids' books about paranormal stuff back in the 70s. So I started reading about that. And then in high school, I was you know, always interested in the topic a little bit. And then, then the X-Files came out in 93 when I think I was a senior in high school. And um, next year I went up to college and ha- had access to the internet and, and discovered – you know, Usenet and all the weirdos on Usenet, Bill Cooper and John Lear yeah. and all of those guys about three years after most people figured out they were making stuff up. Um, so do you have so, a copy of behold a pale horse? Because I, I do. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, there, was, there was one point and that I, um, at one point in graduate school when I was, you know, dirt poor, I was the the unshaven, shabbily dressed man at the blood plasma selling center reading Bill Cooper's Behold the Pale Horse. <laughs> everybody sort of keep, I was like, it's for it's for work, you know, and nobody believed me. But um I I absolutely was that guy. Yeah, I my only regret is that I bought a um I, I bought a I think I bought it used, um, but my used copy of Behold a Pale Horse doesn't have any previous owner's insane notes in it. That's the best thing about buying used conspiracy theory books is just the strange, bizarre <laughs> things people write in them. And my, my copy of Cooper doesn't have that. Probably the previous owner didn't read it because they opened it up and realized that, you know, 40% of it was stuff Cooper had photocopied uh, from somewhere else. It's, uh, yeah. the te- it's a terrible book. My, co- my copy has several underlines and lots of oh, arrows cool. in it and stuff. I'll have to go cool. look at it and see what it all means. <laughs> my, um, my, my favorite uh, my f- note-taking um, was in a copy of Jim Keith's uh, case book on alternative three, um, which okay. is about alternative three. And, um, there's like, it's not just, it's not just like notes in the margin. There's like whole paragraphs. Um, and I happen to have it right here. And, uh, like there's a, a line that's underlined of the CIA funding black magic research in the seventies. Cause you know, oh, nice. of course they were. And, um, of course. And, uh, it, below <laughs> it says, 
this person wrote, this is not stupidity at work in America and elsewhere. This is the apocalyptic fulfillment of biblical prophecy, which precedes the end of the earth age. These are the very real horrors of the end times. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Awesome. So I, I couldn't agree more. My, my, I know. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I'm just sad. My Cooper up. doesn't have more, uh, more stuff like that because it's fun. So I, I, I just sort of got into this stuff through, um, mostly through the internet. It, it's, Boy, when I say it out loud, it, it sounds like the saddest dang thing you ever heard, doesn't it? <laughs> um, did, did you have some sort of sighting or experience? No, I was looking on Usenet and couldn't figure out, you know, how to download anything interesting. And then I read something by a guy named John Lear that sort of spoke to me. That's that's grim, fellas. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's a sad life. But um, but I, I got into it from there and. Uh, I, I had uh, professors that were also interested, one in particular, he was in charge of the history club where I went to college, uh, Hanover College, alma mater of Vice President Mike Pence and Woody Harrelson. Ooh, so uh, no matter your politics, you can get on board with, with one of the alumni. Um, and, uh, and he was in charge of the history club, and, and one spring, he decided to bring David Jacobs to campus oh, to, uh-huh. to talk about yeah, we've had David on the show. Yep. Yeah, to talk about all of his David Jacobs stuff, and uh, I was one of the students who got to to have a little, you know, sit down Q and A session with him, and then have dinner with him, and uh, and and he was strange. I mean, ideas aside, he was a strange person to talk to. Huh. Um, very, very strange, and I, I I liked him immediately because I asked him about these sort of blew me off and, and started talking about, you know, abductions. And I'm just like, wow, you know, you just dismissed like the whole thing that came before your thing as being not a thing. So yeah, he went yeah. on to that the second time he was on this show too. I asked him that question and he, he said, well, that's just a bunch of crap, but my stuff yeah. is totally, <laughs> you know, I, I know where I'm coming from, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, so it was it was it was interesting, and the, the worst part is is all my friends thinking I believed every word he said because I was a UFO guy. I'm like, no, 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 I don't, I don't. <laughs> but uh, but that's sort of um, sort of sort of my background, and, and and mostly I've just been extremely lucky and and blessed to be able to to take this this goofy hobby and and work it into my life in a way that that uh, that's been that's been useful. History wise, what do you teach? What's the main focus that you teach? Just out of curiosity. Um, what do I teach? Is that you? Yeah, it, yeah. It broke up there for a second. Yeah. Like, um, what well, what what's your like main your main field like main subject that you well, teach? If 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 I had my way, I would be mostly teaching um, modern U.S. history and uh, American military history with a little bit of medieval Europe thrown in. But um, but but since schedules are like they are, I usually end up teaching just about everything. Um, but uh, by by training, I'm an inclination. I'm a modern U.S. American military history, diplomatic history. Okay. Kind of guy, mostly I end up teaching world history and and U.S. history surveys, which is which is nice because I can slip that stuff in to most most topics. If you're talking about anything in the 20th century, you can you can slip things in. I, I've had my students read little bits of contactee writing 
you know, and then we, we talk about how it reflects the anxieties of the, the 1950s and things like that. So, um, it's, uh, it's, it's fun, but yeah, uh, post-war U S and, and then medieval Europe, early, especially early medieval Europe. I, I sort of dig, yeah. The the Game of Thrones stuff. <laughs> you know, I I I taught my um my medieval Europe class and my my dean insists on calling it oh, you mean that Game of Thrones class you teach? <laughs> I'm just like, could you not call it that? <laughs> You're just cheapening the whole thing. Uh so now she does it even more just to annoy me. But um Yeah. So yep, and uh yeah, telling students no, there there aren't actually dragons there. Yeah, there's no dragons or dire wolves. So, or, so yeah. When are, yeah, when are we going to talk about Westeros? You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you teach the War of Roses. Yes, that's the Tyrells, yes. right? Right. Yeah. yeah there you go. It's, it, 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 yeah, that's all really we need, isn't it? Um, yeah. So that that's the nice thing about the nice thing about about these days is there's a lot of good history and history based and history looking ish programming on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and just in, in pop culture in general, it, it's, um, my students, I think my students know more about how government works from, um, listening to the Hamilton soundtrack than they ever learned in high school. <laughs> um, and I, I don't blame them. It's, it's more fun. Yeah, that's um, true. And, uh, Vikings, all the Viking shows that uh, the, the actual show Vikings, and then the uh, the Last Kingdom on BBC America. There's there's lots of good uh, history entertainment out there, and, and as long as I can keep convincing people of what's entertainment and what's not, we're in good shape. Uh, so the saucer life, yeah. Um, you make a distinction in the beginning of the podcast, um, episode, I think it's episode one, where you talk about kind of the distinction between the term UFO and the term flying saucer, which have come to be kind of a synonymous thing, but not quite synonymous. There is a distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Let me try to remember what I actually said that distinction was. Um <laughs> What I would say now, six months later, is that the distinction lies in the, 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 the popular perception of what that item is. The, the, the flying saucer in sort of classic 1950s and, and 1960s lore is, is in the minds of the people who word flying saucer is undoubtedly something that is a craft from outer space. Um, that's piloted by beings. There's a, a a mythology and a lore that's built up around the notion of the flying saucer. And from our perspective, it is retro. It is very much a 40s and 50s thing, maybe a little bit in the 60s. A UFO, on the other hand, um, the, the term UFOs, unidentified flying object, is, is, is partially an attempt, I believe, to, um, at least as, as far as perception goes, an attempt to simultaneously demystify and hypermystify the object. Um, it's it's an unidentified flying object. It's a banal thing. It's in the air. We just don't know what it is. But on the other hand, you could also say it's so bizarre we can't even 
attribute a shape or an idea to it. It is truly unidentified, and it could be anything from a structured craft piloted by extraterrestrials to an interdimensional craft to something spiritual to um, anything you like. Uh, I, I think the, the term UFO opens it up more widely, but at the same time confined to something that we can solve. If it's unidentified, then how do we identify it? And I, I, I miss the days when everybody just had this sort of, you know, gut level informed by the media and or whatever they read. Well, it must be aliens from space and they're flying saucers. UFO, yeah, then you're looking for an answer. And I, I'm not sure if looking for an answer is as fun as just finding more questions, which is usually what ends up happening anyway. I couldn't agree more. It's one of those subjects where I don't think the answers are out there, but I think that knowing what all the questions are is very actually important and just as fun, like what you said. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't want to be sort of rude to people, but but I, I I've I've actually said to, to people I can't remember who it was, so I can't say who it was, but <laughs> I, I've said things like. You know, I, I don't know what the solution to the flying saucer mystery is, but I'm pretty sure that you don't have it. Huh. Not not because I think you're wrong, necessarily. Not because I can pick holes in your argument, but because you're using you're using words and concepts that that might not apply to the concept at all. Um, I I think that it it might be stranger than we could possibly give it credit for and, uh, right. and and merely using science to explain it won't work merely using religion to explain it won't work uh, merely using various made-up things like I've got an interdimensional theory won't work um, it's none of, none of it is just one thing and, and I think each manifestation whether it be flying saucers or ghosts or or even even you know cryptozoological things, um, it's a it's a constellation of phenomenon rather than each thing being discrete. Sometimes, and I think yeah. flying saucer sort of puts things in this sort of almost a more, more ethereal mind space where we're, we're calling it this based on what we perceive the shape to be, but we're not defining it as anything because a flying object makes all sorts of assumptions about physicality about materialism about physics as far as it being something that's flying rather than just something you perceive to be flying so i i think there's a lot to unpack between uh the, the two concepts yeah i would agree and you know it's flying saucer it seems to me from especially from listening to your podcast it seems to me like there is definitely a kind of a it's set in its own kind of time period. This idea that um, well, when we had it gone to the moon, we hadn't really left the planet in any kind of like significant way, that this idea that we could have, there could be other species in our own solar system, and therefore these are nuts and bolts craft or visiting here. And later on, as time develops, things become more and more kind of prosaic. <laughs> Yeah, they really do. Um, in the first few years, from the late 40s into the early 50s, there is such a really neatly 
expansive set of views from the, the purely materialistic to the, the just, I don't even know how to put a word to it, but using all of the sort of 19th century American spiritualism of Mead Lane and the Borderland Sciences Research Associates and, and, and those guys and, and fitting it into that world. And, and then, you know, the, the early Cold War paranoia that, that it might be a, a Soviet secret weapon or an American secret weapon. Um, everything was, was much more wide open in the early days. Even if the, the I don't want to say revisionist history because I, I sound like person who says revisionist history. Um, but, but even the sort of accepted narrative of Kenneth Arnold saw a saucer and then along came Donald Kehoe and NICAP to solve the mystery in the face of the government cover up, and the government kept covering everything up. And then the Condon commission said it was all a joke and then MUFON comes along and now MUFON's dumb, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) uh, there's my carefully nuanced critique of MUFON. It's dumb. Um, so there's that sort of narrative that if you read any random book like UFOs for Beginners, it has that sort of – it's always been this way and we're still looking for the solution, um, ignoring the fact that, you know, well, why don't we have psychic channelers try to, you know, get a message beamed to them from the ether craft or whatever. You know, that, that, gets, that gets pushed under the rug and I'm not saying it was ever dominant, but it was there. And um, I think what the, the podcast tries to do is is pick out some of those uh, approaches that have been left behind uh, in the bin of psychology and try to um, try to resurrect them a little bit uh, and and take well known topics and, and try to find some new angle. Okay, I, I was just gonna. Um say it was really it's really cool how he used the phenomenon as like a window to explore uh history and what was going on in society at the time it seems like a really good tool for that it it is it's um it's it's a lens it's a lens just like um just like anything else right uh we can look at history through the lens of, of gender through the lens of class uh through the lens of politics or or war, or anything, uh, why not in religion? And if we're looking at history through the lens of religion, um, then the, the paranormal and, and belief in the paranormal is is right in line with that. So um, I'm happy that, that more scholars are looking at this topic. Um, it tends to be more in the, the cultural studies and sociology areas, but, right. uh, but it's, um, it, it's finally getting, uh, getting some time. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, it really is. Um, so I'm going to talk. Let's talk about this. Uh, the, some of the contactees that you talk about in the, in, oh, the yeah. in the podcast, and I, this, I'm sure that this is also in your book. Uh, George Adamski is an important one, and also Van Tassel is an important one. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about Adamski. You know, where do, where does he come in? What what were his claims? You know, <laughs> how seriously was he taken? Um, he was uh, he was taken very seriously by people who thought he was telling the truth. Um, <laughs> as time went on, that number began to drop. But even today, there are there are Adamski devotees out there. So basically, George Adamski was um, was a man lived. Um, in the, basically the first half 
of the 20th century from like 1903 or something to 1965 when he died. And he was out in California and he, his sort of contactee life begins in, um, in 1952 when he, he claims to have had a meeting with a, a blonde jumpsuited guy named Orthon in the desert, Uh, a flying saucer landed, Orthon gets out, they communicate through a combination of of sign language and, and gestures and things like that, and then he flies away. And Adamski had also been taking photographs of flying saucers through a telescope. He lived near Mount Palomar Observatory, and, and so he was taking photos of, of flying saucers. He publicizes these claims, um, gets all kinds of speaking engagements. Later on, it's written up as sort of the last chunk of a, a book about basically flying saucers throughout history through mythology called flying saucers have landed, uh, by a guy named from Britain named Desmond Leslie. And Adamski just sort of takes off as the first sort of modern contactee. And in, in subsequent books and talks, he talks about how the, the space brothers from Venus and, and Saturn and other places, they're human. They're just living on other planets. They were once like us here on Earth. They were warlike, greedy, and primitive. And the way to advance beyond the cosmic kindergarten that we're in is to embrace their cosmic philosophy of love and brotherhood and understanding, which is a a pretty reasonable set of beliefs in a world that's facing nuclear war. But – and most historians look at Adamski and the contactees and say, well, they're just scared of nukes. And so started telling these stories about, you know, how other places were better than here. But Adamski's belief in some sort of cosmic universal law and this universal brotherhood goes back to um, pamphlets he wrote in the 1930s. Uh, and it really comes out in a 1947 novel called Pioneers of Space, where some astronauts go and visit humans on on the moon and mars and venus and things like that and, right. <laughs> and live in these very nice societies so as adamski is is getting popular he writes a second book called inside uh, inside the spaceships which is all about you know his meetings with the aliens and and all about their society and how wonderful it is jim mosley who uh, did Saucer Smear, the newsletter, and uh, basically was a, a a wonderfully hilarious thorn inside of serious UFO researchers for you know forty or fifty years. He decides to investigate Adamski, and and what he finds out is that witnesses' statements who you know supposedly were there when Adamski met the alien that they didn't actually see anything. It was too far away. He analyzes the photographs and finds that uh, at least one of them is a is a hubcap uh, rather than an actual flying saucer. <laughs> and, and so Mosley does this this expose on Adamski, but but he says you know he believes that Adamski's claims are false, but his beliefs are genuine, and that's generally the angle I've taken with these with these contactees is that you know while. They may not have been telling the truth about aliens. I think some of them might have had some kind of experience of some sort, um, maybe with something that wanted them to think they were an alien for whatever reason. But their philosophical ideals and, and their desire for this brotherhood of 
of humanity. That stuff was was pretty reasonable. My favorite Adamski sort of story theory thing is that after he died, uh, he went to join his spirit ascended to join the other space brothers out in space and sit on the ruling council. And that from time to time, he manifests here on earth to guide us along our way. Basically, Adamski becomes almost a, a space Jesus, kind of figure, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is very strange. There's a story about how he had a very strange belly button and, and it, it, it gets weird. But even today, there are there are there's a, a George Adamski International Foundation. And if anybody reads my contact ebook, uh, Extraterrestrials in the American Zeitgeist, you'll notice that there is an ugly George Adamski Foundation web address sort of watermark on all the Adamski pictures, because that is the only way I would get them to sign a release to be able to use their photos. And um, it, it irritates me, but uh, they seem like the kind of people who, uh, who who actually, well, my publisher demanded the paperwork, but they're the type of people who would have sued, you know? Sure. So they're, they're, they're very staunchly defending it. I had, I had to explain what I was, what the book was about and sort of assure them that it wasn't any sort of hit piece on, uh, on Adamski. What, what I didn't say was, you know, Adamski got debunked in like 1955. You know, nobody, I don't need to debunk Adamski. Um, that ship sailed, but uh, they're, they're still staunchly defending him, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, he's got still a big following in Europe where, where the, the sort of contactee and channeling thing always sort of hung on a bit more tightly uh, for whatever reason than than here in the states, so Adamski he traveled all over the uh, all over the country, all over the world to Europe, to Mexico, uh, giving speeches usually to uh, to fairly big crowds. Um, when the crowds weren't big, or when the and when the crowds were hostile, he claimed that a uh, a group of people known as the Silence Group were trying to shut him up. Um, not quite the Men in Black, but but sort of that idea that uh, he was getting too close to the truth. Um, According to some reports, uh, his religious organization he established back in the 1920s was was mostly a front to get permission to uh, buy and uh, serve alcohol, uh, sacramental wine, during the last years of Prohibition. So uh-huh. there's some hints that he was always sort of on the make in one way or another. But uh, but he he's the the granddaddy of the contactees, and you don't get anywhere without at least nodding in Adamski's direction with this stuff. Ed Van Tassel, who I believe Van Tassel was his first name, George also. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there Just. were a bunch of Georges. Uh, George <laughs> Van Tassel. Yeah. George Van Tassel was, um, was a contactee who, who was the first to, um, to become involved with the, the space being, uh, an, uh, Ashtar. Uh, he channeled Ashtar, um, who's the space commander commander working for Sananda Jesus, one of the Ascended Masters. Another um, space it, Jesus. There's a couple of them then. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's another space Jesus sort of thing. And um, <laughs> you know, Ashtar and his, uh, his, his fellow space masters are in orbit in our solar system, defending the Earth against, um, against bad guys and against our own stupidity if we are to unleash nuclear war. What's cool about Ashtar is after Van Tassel sort of died, 
um, because Ashtar was a channeled being, you know, he just sort of transmitted these messages telepathically. Anybody could just say they were channeling Ashtar. And so the, the Ashtar myth has lived on up to the, if you go out on the internet, you will find people today who are still channeling Ashtar. And, and then you'll have three people, three different people channeling Ashtar and they'll all say different things. And so there's a fight over who's really channeling Ashtar and it, it turns and it can, it can turn into a whole thing. Yeah, Ashtar gets around, man. Now you have the, the Ashtar Command, which I guess is one of the three. Yeah, Ashtar Command was 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 sort of an offshoot by a guy who who thought that Van Tassel wasn't doing enough to make money off of Ashtar. Um, Van Tassel's other big claim to fame was uh, he had a, a house at a, a Giant Rock out in California, and um, in Landers, California. And he, he started the giant rock flying saucer convention. This became like the annual happening for the UFO crowd. Everybody who was anybody would be there giving a talk at, uh, at giant rock. So and he built a machine called a building slash machine called the Integratron. So yeah. this domed building that, that did something with energy, uh, <laughs> and revitalized you and, and enhanced, uh, enhanced your, your psychic abilities or something like that. So, um, one of the, one of the names that, that wasn't just a, a channeler, he was active and really establishing kind of a, a, a scene among, among the UFO crowd, like the first big sort of UFO or flying saucer conventions as we might recognize them today. Yeah, I want to get out to see the Integratron. That's like a personal oh, goal. It'd be great. <laughs> have you have you great. never been out I've ne- there? I've never been out there. Uh, never been out there. I need to see the Integratron, and I need to see the Georgia Guidestones. Those are my okay. my my two things that I that I need to see. I have seen the the Guidestones a few times. So is it is it pretty uh, pretty impressive? It is pretty impressive. It's cool. it's very very interesting. <laughs> Do you have a question, Sergio? <laughs> Oh no! I was just uh, taking down some notes to ask some questions later. Okay, okay. Uh, that I, sounds th- ominous. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that uh, you, you talk about is Truman Bethram and oh, his uh, and his friend Ara Rains. Uh, she was tops in shapeliness and beauty. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ara uh, Rains was was Truman Bethram was uh, he worked for the railroad, uh, sort of a some kind of laborer for the railroad and uh, he's out in, out in California as just about all these guys were, uh, back in the day. And he had a visit from a flying saucer and it was captained by a woman from the planet Clarion named Aura Rains. And, uh, he described her as, as being, as being beautiful and, 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 you know, all sorts of not, not like, not like creepy descriptions of of her beauty, but but he wouldn't stop talking about her beauty and her charm and her intelligence. And um, what's great is well, not great actually. This is pretty horrible. But his wife, um, his wife became convinced that that he was he was cheating on her, not necessarily with somebody with a from the planet Clarion on a spaceship, but uh, but all this was like a way to cover up like an actual affair he was having uh, in the book, you know, he, he's, they, they later get divorced for, I think a much broader variety of reasons, but in the book it, it, it's hilarious because Bethram's 
uh, A Board of Flying Saucer was basically the second contact ebook that was published after Adamski's account. And at the end of Bethram's book, he tells the story about the only way he could get his wife to believe him, that, that Aura was a space woman, not just some woman he was running around on her with. Um, <laughs> he had George Adamski visit his wife and explain the truth about the space beings. And, and she believed him then. Once she talked to to Professor, in quotes, Professor Adamski, uh, she she believed it. But at, at first she didn't. And, um, and, and Bethram was uh, – he wrote another sort of – pamphlet that that wasn't flying saucer based at all it was more a uh, a political tract about uh that that, that's vaguely vaguely socialist but not enough socialist to get him in trouble there in the 1950s um but but he he was a, a regular out at the giant rock conventions and and it was the first who who had a it was the first contactee who had um his person from another planet, not be from our solar system to, to be from a made up planet, which is, uh, which is pretty, pretty significant, but, but yeah, aura reigns and she wore like a, a little uniform and her uniform included like this kicky little beret, which, uh, so, so she actually had a space hat, you know, that, that she wore. So it's, it's just kind of charming. And, and, and you know, it, it's like all of the, the contact ebooks at this time there, you know, Clarion's a wonderful place. They used to be warlike, warlike like us, but they're not anymore. Um, they all believe in God, which God, uh, yeah, let's not talk about that, but, but they all believe in God, um, which God will, whichever one you think they do, pal. Okay. Just, Whatever makes you happy. So, you know, just sort of the sort of vague, you know, fantasy land that would be great if our world was like this. And did these guys kind of – did they kind of associate with each other? Did they – because you talk about Bethram uh, having some kind of association with, with Adamski. Did they communicate? Did they kind of feed off each other in a way? This this kind of uh, uh, like this association. Yeah, it's kind of difficult. It's kind of difficult to know. They they, they many times knew each other. Um, often they were uh, you know speaking at the same saucer clubs and, and conventions and things. So they were they were on the same speaking circuit. And sometimes they they did sort of work together. George Hunt Williamson, who would um, do some channeling and 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 really pioneered a lot of the ancient aliens type of stuff. He was one of the original so-called witnesses that were at Adamski's original, um, original contact, but they later had an argument over whether or not psychic messages were, were any good for the most part though. What you see is that a lot of times they, they sort of view each other as, uh, as, as colleagues, but also competitors. They're all trying to get booked at for speaking gigs. They're all trying to sell books and they're all trying to get, you know, good press and magazines and newspapers. So th- they are economically very much in competition with each other, but there's also, uh, I- I've seen references in, in sort of correspondence and, and memoirs and things that there's sort of an unwritten rule of you don't, knock the other guy's contactee story. You know, you, and that's one thing you see is that the, most of the contactees, they tell their own story. They do not attack other people's story. 
They don't say, I'm the only one who met the Venusians because they were like this. Adamski didn't meet him. He's wrong about, you know, what kind of fruit they served at lunch because I had lunch with him. You don't get that. <laughs> There's a sense that that we're all trying to get a share of this flying saucer, you know, pie or whatever. So let's not let, let's not damage each other. Let's all go out there and let's all make money with these stories. And if you got two contactees on the same, like on the same card at an event, um, they they will, you know, mention the similarities between their story and another guy's story. And a lot of these stories were, were, were very similar to each other in in the broad outline. So it was easy to do that. Most of all, you don't knock somebody's story or debunk them because odds are their contactee story. Um, is no more flimsy than yours is. So you don't want to go down the road of of encouraging scrutiny on your stories about meeting the uh, the space people. So you're, you're competitors, but you're also colleagues, and you're all sort of cooperating to to keep uh, keep things going. I to be honest, this is a horrible analogy, but um, in, in a lot of ways, it's. Uh, I was going to say it's a pro wrestling sort of thing, but it, but it, it does sort of come out of this carnival tradition a little bit. Right. Um, the, people might have been believers in the contactee story, but for a lot of contactees, they 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 weren't you know believers or followers. They were marks. You know, they were they were marks there to pay money and buy a ticket. And you're going to sell more tickets if you have a bunch of different guys at the show. Um, you're going to sell more books if you get more exposure, and that means not you know, not alienating people who could get you booked for a speaking gig or, or something like that. So there's, there, I get the sense they were all sort of in it together, especially during the the early years there in the fifties. Going back to something you said about them possibly having some kind of real experience. Um, It's so much in the UFO contactee and then later in the UFO abductee, uh, experiences, mythology, whatever word you want to use, there there is a very, to me, a very there's a very much similar aspect to like religious experience. Yeah. So, do you think that these guys that that's that that may be what they were having, like kind of like an altered state kind of experience when they were meeting oh. these beings? I, I think that's that's entirely possible. Yeah. Um, I, I think. I, I mean, I don't. I don't discount it. And I'll, I'll be honest when anybody says, do you think it could have been this? My, my response is usually, well, yeah, sure. Because it could have been a whole number of things. Um, I'm not married to any particular theory. And I think there's a lot of overlap with, um, with sort of transformative religious experiences and visions and, and especially the idea of getting messages to spread around to people. There's, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, I don't, St. Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, having this life changing experience and then spreading this message that, that he'd been, that he'd been convinced of. That's not too different from what the contactees were doing. Now the the question then becomes in, in our sort of, you know, idea of, you know, raising more questions than, than finding answers is, is who's doing this communicating and why. Uh, and, and that sort of when I take my historian hat off and put my, I don't know, weirdo hat on, <laughs> um, everybody's got a sort of take on what might be communicating or what might be 
be out there from, um, I was at a, a, a self-described UFO conference this weekend here in Michigan that, that was mostly just a sermon, uh, at a, at a little sort of storefront church. And, and they, they said conference, but I, I looked it up and it, it was a church, but I went, I went anyway. And, um, they're very much, uh, on the, the angle that, that these experiences are demonic, that, uh, it, it's, it's some sort of demonic manifestation, which, which, yeah, that sounds, that sounds at least as plausible to me as, uh, as aliens from space. And, um, it, it's, it's interesting because these beings visit and then they, they have a message and, Sometimes I think the people involved don't scrut enough, scrutinize enough where that message might be coming from. Right. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to me that there is something, there, that there is that aspect to it. Um, because it's interesting to me, too, that, like I mentioned before, that Adamski is claiming, well, we're seeing Venu. I'm seeing Venusians. Well, at the time, we didn't know much about Venus. We didn't know whether there was life there or not. And then later on, it just keeps getting moved further and further out to where you don't know what's out there. You know, yeah. once it, once it's proven that hey, there are no Venusians, Venus cannot, you know, Venus cannot, <coughs> life cannot be there. So right. then later on, okay, well the planet Clarion and then Zeta Reticuli and now it's <laughs> and and now everybody's getting on board because of like Tom DeLong, the whole trans-dimensional right. thing. And yeah. you know, that's that's becoming more and more popular now. But it, it it's it's just it's just always interested me just how Whatever the entities are, that they kind of reflect what the first of all reflect the concerns that are going on at the time. At that time, it was nuclear war, and now you might be getting more messages of like you know ecological disaster, right? Um, mm-hmm. Those exactly. those type of things, and exactly. and then also just the moving it further out and out into the in into space, you know, <laughs> um, right. The was any of the government agencies were they inter- interested in any of these guys? Um, they were, and usually this interest sort of um, UFO uh, UFO people see this this kind of government interest and see that there's you know hundreds of pages of FBI files about a contactee and say, oh, you see, see, you know, what was the government trying to cover up? Usually the concern was in the 1950s, especially. That, that these contactees might be spreading messages that could be considered communist and that they right. could be tools of a, um, an, enemy, an enemy power. Um, one show I did sort of looked at some FBI files, um, an observation of uh, the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Uh, I almost said in Detroit, but uh, the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. And the concern was there were FBI informants people who, you know, had an interest in saucers and then went along to a, a flying saucer club meeting who heard things that made them very nervous about what political agenda this group might be, might be pushing because there were some people in the group who, who talked about how, you know, universal brotherhood and, and love and getting rid of nuclear weapons. And so ordinary citizens would would write to the local FBI office in Detroit, and uh, um, and the FBI usually was like, "Yeah, keep us informed. Um, keep us informed." Or they'd 
they'd investigate and they'd say, you know, the, these people are weird, but um, but they don't really seem to be doing anything wrong. However, they might be open to or subject to or vulnerable to being influenced by people who do want to, you know, cause the nation harm. So some of them were put under surveillance. Um, George Adamski got some visits from the FBI because he was making claims that uh, that the FBI approved of his work and other government agencies approved of his work. And so the FBI showed up to, to basically say, could you stop telling people that? Because, <laughs> come on. Um, but there was, there, was some, there was some scrutiny. But that's mostly because in the 1950s, uh, there, there was, uh, in the J. Edgar Hoover days, there was a lot of FBI and, and other law enforcement scrutiny of any group that looked like it might have any sort of ideological angle that didn't line up with the sort of 100% Americanism uh, of the time. So that is what caught authorities' attention in, in records I've seen a lot more than, um, oh my gosh, they're onto the truth about you know our secret deal with the aliens or, or something like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of segue into uh, the fact that the uh, these the contactee accounts of these alien societies and kind of this you know universal brotherhood socialistic stuff. It fits a narrative of a lot of like the the Soviet science fiction, and mm, it, a lot of those yeah. stories are like the same thing. And they're you know trying to uh, either help some you know primitive capitalist society. Uh, you know, it, it's I've, I've got a few collections of, of Soviet sci-fi, and it's all the same kind of stuff. And I was wondering though if, if there's any evidence that's come out now of was there any evidence of any Soviet influence through any of this? Um. Not, not that I've seen, which is not to say it wasn't there, but, um, not that I've seen, uh, not that I've seen directly. No, but the, uh, the Soviet science fiction, um, angle is an interesting one. Um, you should write a book about that. Go do that. Um, <laughs> because you have been tasked. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Go, go, go write a book. Um, but not that, uh, not that I know of. Cool. Have you have you have you read any of that Soviet science fiction stuff? There's a lot of you know big paperback collections and stuff. They're pretty cool. You know, I haven't. I've I've read about it, um, but I haven't read any of it directly. But uh, it's one of those things. I've seen these collections. I'm like, oh wow, Soviet science. That looks cool. I should read that. And then I I never do. Um, but They're always it, pretty it, much the same story. It's it's just that same narrative with you know either uh, a. a a primitive society becoming, uh, becoming advanced or, or this, you know, socialist utopian society that's, you know, uh, going through space and discovering these primitive capitalists, uh, you know, like us yeah. fighting on this world, you know? Yeah. That, that, that's interesting. Cause you know, I mean, knowing what I know about the Soviet union, I was going to say during the communist years, but if it's the Soviet union, they were all communist years. The Benadryl is kicking in. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Soviet Union, I mean, if I were a, a science fiction author, one way to make sure that nobody in power gives me any hassle over oh, yeah. what I'm writing is, is you know, to make sure it's, 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 ideologically, uh, it's ideologically sound. But it's, it is interesting. And here's the thing. 
in the 1930s, um, and, and this is sort of a speculation thing, but in the 1930s in the United States, this is the point at which the, the Communist Party UFO, uh, Communist Party UFO, Communist Party <laughs> USA had Communist Party UFO. Sounds like the, the oh, like, I don't know what that sounds like, but it's awesome. Um, had the largest membership of, of any point in its existence. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, the, the anti-communist, you know, witch hunts of the 1950s dragged so many people through the, uh, the, the hearings was that there were a lot of Americans working in government who had joined communist party organizations and communist youth organizations back when they were in college, uh, because they were much more active during the late 1930s than at, uh, than at any other time. And, and, and so, you know, you've ever been in a relationship and, and your partner wants to go to this thing and you, you just sort of go along because, well, he wants to go. Um, wouldn't surprise me if some of these contactees had had that kind of, you know, limited but significant experience in, uh, in that environment. That's an interesting link possibility there. That because, like I said, the the phenomena reflects the concerns of the people at large and can reflect the concerns of that person as well. Right, right, right. And this, especially the, um, the 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 more explicit critiques of capitalism, um, the, the the world peace and the anti nuclear thing. You, you had you had groups like the or um, you know concerned scientists of america i forget the actual name of the organization but there were lots of like sort of more mainstream non-political groups that were also very concerned about about uh nuclear weapons but you combine the the pro peace with the with the anti-capitalist or critique, critiques of capitalism because they were all excited about selling their books to people so they weren't too down on capitalism but um the sort of anti-capitalist vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what formal connections some of these folks might've had. Yeah. Albert Bender is another interesting one. Now he really doesn't fit in, I think with the contact tees as much. Um, he is more, he more kind of reflects the dark side of this, of this material. Yeah, and and he he does kind of fit into the contactee stuff, but but never people never remember that because it was that stuff came after nobody cared about Al Bender um, as much. Al Bender was uh, the the guy who founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau, the, basically the first national international UFO organization, and he had a network of investigators around the around the world. Gray Barker was one of them, um, and uh, it was they had a, a magazine called Space Review uh, with the little strap line "Space Review Reviews Space," which is the the worst slogan ever. <laughs> but um, Space Review reviews space. But but Bender was like uh, just a he was a weird guy. He, he was bef- even before UFOs. He, he was a weird guy. I lived um, lived with the stepfather in a giant old house, and uh, he had the whole attic to himself. He had it decorated up like a, a carnival haunted house with sound effects and everything, and would would bring people through it and scare them and, and get a real kick out of out of you know scaring people. Very into horror stuff. Um, very into to sort of dark, gruesome things, and and kind of a kind of a, a quiet, unassuming guy. 
And um, as he's running this flying saucer organization, uh, long story, longish story, shortish, um, he claims that out of the blue that he's shutting down the organization. They're not going to do it. He's figured out what the answer to the mystery is, but he's been uh, he's been you know sworn to secrecy on his honor as an American citizen, and so um, you know men threatened him. Three men uh, who were probably wearing black, and uh, Gray Barker picks up on the story and writes a book called "They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers." That sort of introduces this idea of the men in black, these these sinister sinister enforcers who uh who threaten people into into silence about the ufo subject and pretty soon other people start telling stories of similar encounters uh even ones that predated bender um the uh, the maury island case where a ufo uh or saucer of some kind ejected material crashed into puget sound in washington state men in black show up there. Other people tell Barker they've had similar encounters. And ever since there's been these, these stories about not just sinister threatening people telling you not to talk about what you've seen, but also engaging in very strange and, you know, kind of alien ish behavior. Uh, John Keel's Mothman prophecies book is, is full of men in black encounters from West Virginia around that time. So, so Bender disappears from the scene and resurfaces in the 60s with a book he wrote, heavily edited by Gray Barker, called Flying Saucers and the Three Men, and which is sort of his whole telling of the thing. And this is where it gets into contactee territory because um, he claims that they are – that the, the men he met were beings from the planet Kayak. Uh, spelled K-A-Z-I-K, and uh, they— Th- That sounds almost unpronounceable. They, I know. It, it, it is. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's so weird because in the book, he writes it out K-A-Z-I-K and then makes sure to tell you it's pronounced Kayak, um, which kind of gives it a little—this is a stretch—gives it a little bit of credibility. Because, well, if I was making this up, why would I have it spelled one way and pronounced another? Um, this is really how it was. Um, they they take him to Kayak, which, of course, is a wonderfully utopian place where there's there's free love and no marriage and uh, and, and everything is everything is wonderful. And and the book is weird enough and, and poorly enough written that it, it kind of vanishes without trace. Uh, Bender had plans to write a second book about Kayak, but it never materialized. And, and he sort of faded. He left the scene and and would not talk to anybody about it ever, uh, ever again. Um, and he died just a couple years ago at wow. uh, in a, well into his 90s um, without really ever talking to anybody about it. He after was the mid 60s. He was also very heavily into the occult, as I understand. Yeah, um, his his house of horrors there up in the attic um, really did uh, really did have a lot of, of sort of esoteric and people have people have interpreted it as having a lot of esoteric and magical elements. And his first experience with the uh, the, the the men in black came during something he called World Contact Day, where he wanted everybody 
on Earth to concentrate on one message, uh, attention, uh, calling all visitors from interplanetary space, or calling all occupants of interstellar crafts, where the song comes from. Oh, uh, okay. But, yeah, so it, it's it, World Contact Day, and then he gets this this horrible sort of migraine-like headache, and uh, there's weird odors and scents, so you know, paging Joshua Cushion for, for weird brimstone <laughs> odors. Our buddy um, Josh. And uh, – He's, he's, he's great. Um, he's great. And I'm very excited about his new book uh, mm. when it comes out. So are we. Uh, so there's a lot of people, uh, I, uh, Nick Redford in particular in his, uh, in one of his like 80,000 books about these topics. <laughs> uh, he's written several men in black books and things. He points at, uh, points at this and, and sort of says, I, I think it's, it's Redfern talks about how, you know, sitting down and meditating and, and doing this world contact day sort of psychic thing. Um, you know, there, there's elements of, of sort of conjuring or summoning there, you right. know, um, you're, you're, you're bringing something forth that you don't quite have the capacity to understand or, uh, or handle And somebody who's more familiar with, uh, with, with that occult magic, area would, would probably know like real terminology for those sorts of things. But that's, that's one of the, um, one of the theories out there is, is that, you know, whatever it was that Bender summoned that, that came to Bender, it, it, Bender might have, uh, might have summoned it himself, um, through, uh, through some kind of ritual. And then it's sort of stuck with him and he couldn't get rid of it. And he sort of created this, this, you know, UFO secrecy narrative to as, as a, as a coping mechanism kind of. So Bender himself didn't ever really think that maybe he had actually conjured this up or maybe his, his dabblings into the occult maybe had something to do with it. Not that I recall, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I read the book. Um, he's, he, he does the usual contacty thing of, of claiming that he was chosen by the aliens. It's, it's always very much a, a, they came to him, they observed him and they knew he was a big shot in the saucer community. And so they knew of him before the contact day. So the summoning is, or the contact day is when it happened, but he gives the, the, um, the interpretation that, that they had been watching him for a very long time rather than them, him bringing them forth. Was there any other uh, figures that you may have written about in your book about, but you haven't talked about on the podcast yet that maybe interest you? Yeah, um, there's uh, Howard uh, Howard Menger. I think it's, yeah, Men- Menger or Menger. I uh, I've heard both pronunciations, and I'm going to need to figure that out. But uh, I'll say Menger. Howard Menger was uh, known as the East Coast Damsky. He was out in uh, in New Jersey. And he had a contact experience that was really interesting because he ended up, and this is a, a very shorthand version, he, he ended up leaving his wife for a woman that he believed he was married to in a previous lifetime on another planet. So he, he leaves his wife and, and hooks up with this woman who, who also believed that she was his wife reincarnated from their past life 
on another planet. So you're getting into sort of past life regression stuff with this and the the whole, you know, any one of us could be one of the space brothers, you know, if you just if you, you know, you might find that out. And he also recorded some music, uh, sort of outer space music that I think he claimed was the type of music they played on the planet where he was lived in another life. So, so Menger is an interesting guy. Um, there's sort of connected with Menger, but, but also connected to some other writers is a, a figure named, uh, Valiant Thor. Oh yeah. Who, um, <laughs> supposedly, <laughs> supposedly was, uh, was an actual Venusian who uh, hung out at the Pentagon and advised the government for a while. He was uh, written about in a book by uh, Frank Strangis called Stranger in the Pentagon. And there's actually some photos of a guy that from the time that, that you know, Val Thor fans claim is Val Thor. And um, he just looks like a guy. And there's other people sitting around him. It's at a UFO event that I think Menger was running. And, and, you know, they, they have names for, for two or three of the other people. There's, you know, here's the first officer, here's the communications officer, here's this other woman. They're all from Venus. Uh, they're, and they're just like random fifties people <laughs> sit, sitting in a crowd. And yeah. it, it's, it's hilarious. I think actually thinking back on it, stranger at the Pentagon was probably the first contactee book I ever read. I think I read it back in, in junior high or high school, but what I discovered recently, and this is not any sort of breaking news, but it's it's insane, is that there's a there are people out there. Well, there's one guy. I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll, there's one guy mostly um, that believes that Val Thor was a real a, a real thing that that the Val Thor story was real that Adamski was real that we have been lied to about the atmospheric pressure and uh, surface uh, temperature on Venus okay. that we could actually live there. That that all of the um, all of the stuff that that you know we've been told is a cover up, and his evidence is is mostly that the Soviets sent a whole lot of probes to Venus. Why would they have sent so many probes if it wasn't capable of supporting life? Well, I don't know. Soviets send probes to places, and he argues that, <laughs> that we always hear way more about Jupiter and Mars in the media than we do about Venus because they're trying to keep people's attention away from Venus because See, Elon you know, Musk is a part of that. He's, he's part of that conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk. Hey, it's, it's all, it's all a massive. Dis- if massive Elon Musk dis- says we can live on Venus, I believe we can live on Venus. <laughs> <laughs> if we you could know, just figure out a way to get off this flat earth to get to Venus. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the flat earth. I really hope never to live long enough that that would become a thing again. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the the yeah we need to we need to sort of figure out how to how to do that because you know we've we can finally you know, get on something round. That's right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the only flat planet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's there's still people out there who who believe uh, who believe these things. Um, other contactees that may include may appear. Um, oh, um, there's, uh, two women, the, uh, Helen Mitchell and Betty Mitchell, they're two sisters who, uh, who had a contact experience, um, among other places at a coffee shop in St. Louis back in the, the late 1950s. And, and they mostly just spoke at conventions, but wrote a little pamphlet that, uh, that was published and is out there on the internet. Um, so you have like 
one sister tells her story and the, the other sister tells her story. Uh, Orfeo Ang- Angelucci was um, another uh, contactee again. Um, he did, uh, I think, some more stuff with uh, strange alien writing uh, that some of than some of the others did. Uh, Ashtar continues. Uh, there might be a what's at, a, a where are they now segment on <laughs> Ashtar <laughs> in the last five years. You know what people on the internet are saying about Ashtar. There's one guy, and I don't remember the the actual channeler's name, but Hatan was one of Ashtar's subordinates, and um, Hatan channeled through these people back in the '90s and and. Early, early to late '90s, there was a a sort of newsletter called the uh, the the Phoenix Newsletter, and it all claimed to be channeled from Hatan, and it was basically nothing but but the sort of right wing conspiracy paranoia from the '90s that uh, that actually some of it would make Bill Cooper. Uh, say, whoa, guys, really? I think you're going a little bit far because, um, most of it was, was deeply anti-Semitic. Um, lots and lots of, of really virulent anti-Jewish sentiment, um, racist in, you know, about three, three other different, uh, different aspects to it. And it was just these, these insane ramblings. And it was the, the subject of some lawsuits when there was dispute over who controlled it, which, which, which sort of crazy nineties whack job, you know, controlled Hatan. Uh, but it was all, you know, taking this, this figure who'd been known for the, the, the sort of Ashtar love and light type stuff and, uh, and, and just completely twisting it. And, uh, I, I think at one point, Hatan even calls everybody sheeple, uh, which is, oh. uh, I think he actually like, go, he go, he's in full on wake up sheeple mode in this, <laughs> uh, in this newsletter. And, um, like a proto Alex Jones. It, it yeah. is. It's like, it's like if Alex Jones was channeling an otherworldly being, which he might be, yeah, maybe <laughs> like, he might be. Yeah, that's actually not the most impossible thing I've heard. <laughs> I, I, I still, I still, really enjoy the conspiracy theory that Alex Jones is Bill Hicks. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, my favorite. That, that, that is, <laughs> I that, love that. That. Bill Hick, that Bill Hicks faked his death and became Alex Jones. And he's um, going to wait another decade and be like, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's that's, that's fun stuff. And, um, <laughs> well, my personal, my, my fi- go ahead, go ahead. Uh, my, my favorite Alex Jones thing was, was, was recently in the, the custody battle with his, with his wife where his lawyers, you know, went into court and said, you know, this is all an act, you know, yeah. this is, this is for entertainment purposes. And, and a lot of Alex Jones fans are like, see how cool and clever Alex Jones is to sort of make everybody believe it's an act when we know it's not an act. Wow. dimensional <laughs> chess. Um, it's like, no, you, you guys are keep buying your, I don't know, testosterone powders or, or whatever he sells <laughs> on, on his, I, I've never even actually seen one of his ads. I just, he seems like the type of guy who would be pushing some sort of health supplement. It, it's called super intent. male vitality. <laughs> is it, is it seriously? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, is that, <laughs> we might have to edit that out. I'm sorry. I don't want to give a fuck. 
Yeah, yeah, we don't want to give him a plug. But it's you know, the sort of thing that in 10 years, it turns out, well, this makes your heart explode. Uh, <laughs> oh, or, or, or some, well, he's obviously using it because I think he's about the, he's about to a coronary. I, I was going to add <laughs> that my, my personal uh, conspiracy theory is that Donald Trump is Andy Kaufman. That's my personal conspiracy theory. So, <laughs> you need to take that. Oh, about Valiant Thor. Um as I remember, I think that his brother's name was Don and his sister's yeah. name was Jill. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I heard it was Commander Don. Spaceman name ever. I'm Valiant Thor. And this is my first officer, Commander Don. Um, which is, I, I, have an, I have an uncle named Don. And so I just imagine my my uncle sort of sitting on the on the flying saucer. But yeah, yeah, he had this this whole sort of family slash crew thing. Could you imagine was, when they were picking names? He's like, okay, my name's Valiant. Well, what's mine? Don. Don. <laughs> Come on, Val. Really? Come on. <laughs> and you're Break. and you're Jill. Yeah. Jill. Jill. <laughs> yeah. Communications off. Ah, Jill. Whatever. It's like I spent all my creative energy on Valiant Thor. And we're, we're just picking random names out of the phone book for the rest of you guys. There's also a band called Valiant Thor too. Just to yes. tell you, that. I, uh, I I think. I think I knew that, and I, I was—I've never heard any of their stuff, but I—I'm I, happy knowing there's a band named Valiant Thor out there. <laughs> uh, there. There should be. There needs to be. Um, oh, there, there needs to be. There need to be more sort of old school UFO themed uh, themed pop culture stuff. I want I want a line of Funko Pop dolls of contactees. <laughs> that is what I want. I, I want you know you got your Iron Man, your Captain America, your Truman Bethram, uh, with complete with you know retailer exclusive Aura Reigns doll. Oh yeah, but yeah. that would be she'd have to have the little space hat. Betty yeah. and Barney. You could base her off Storm. Bar- base her off Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Betty and Barney Hill. That'd be awesome. That would be that would be great. Um, yeah, it's 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 a subject that that is is so ripe for fun. Um, even even the more modern serious stuff. There's just so much fun to be had with it. But there's there there's there's so much seriousness, and that just makes it more fun yeah. to to goof on some of it sometimes because. Because if you don't, you you go insane. Um, and and the, the the contactee thing keeps going. I, I think in a lot of ways, the uh, the the way the exopolitics movement framed itself at the turn of the century, and for about ten years after, uh, before it you know went full on you know disclosurey stuff. But if you look at, at Stephen Greer's writings back in the '90s when he was starting up C SETI and, and and those groups. Um, the, the crucial com- one of the crucial components was, you know, because we've had ac- the government's had access to alien technology, we have the means to alleviate, you know, every social and economic problem we have. We just need, you know, the the cabal of bad guys that's in charge of our government to, you know, release the, the technology that will give us free energy. And clean up the atmosphere and eliminate greenhouse gases and 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 do all these sorts of things. So the idea of using um, using 
uh, stories about extraterrestrial presence on Earth as a means of promoting uh, promoting agendas of of social change. Right. Uh, that that's I mean that's that's the contactee playbook and. Wow. Um, but but you know Greer was was you know all scientific about things of course with his flashlights out in the field and waving, Greer waving them in talks about basically what he's doing is having people conjure UFOs. I mean that, yeah. that's another aspect of the how where he's similar as well. Yeah, you know it, you know the, the whole if you uh, if you if you call for them they will come. Well. If you call for something, something might come, but what it is might not be what you're expecting, but you will get lost in your own ideas about what you want to see and what you expect to see. And then if if anybody out there hasn't read uh, George Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal, um, you you really need to because it it talks about how the phenomenon itself – in all of its different forms from, from ghosts to UFOs, it, it isn't just a, it does these things and then we notice it and then we study it like a scientific thing the the phenomenon itself actively messes with you. And, um, yes. there, there's, there's speaker, I think, uh, Jeff Ritzman's done some really interesting, uh, interviews I've heard where he talks about the ways that once you get into these things deeply enough, it affects many different aspects of your life. And, you know, not in a good way a lot of times. And I I think there are there are forces that people are dealing with that they might not might not understand and might not be prepared for. And they can manifest in any variety of ways. And I I think uh, I I think sometimes people do call them down and uh, and then they. And then they make sense of. The consequences in a variety of ways, whether it be, you know, establishing uh, religious beliefs or or writing UFO books. Right, exactly. Uh, Aaron, I can't let you go uh, until I, before you tell me your own saucer life experience, where you got oh. you got mistaken for a oh. man in black. Oh yeah, or man in. T- I was wearing a tweed, a heavy tweed sport coat in July in Indiana because I was stupid. So basically, um, back <laughs> in this is this is a fun story. Uh, back in college, uh, it was it was summer break, and, and but back in college, I had uh, this was, would have been in '96. I uh, I had joined an organization called the UFO Investigation Agency or UFOIA, and uh, and and I learned about it through a post on Usenet because that's all I had. And uh, the guy running it was a guy named Randolph B. Warnicky. Which, uh, who I found out recently was uh, was uh, convicted of possessing child pornography. So I guess that's sort of a thing in ufology. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. He's not the first. Uh, probably won't be the last uh, freak and or pervert to hang around. Um, but uh, but he would send out these. Um, you know, he, he'd assign you cases to investigate, and and I was designated as the leader of strategic investigation team thirteen ten. I was the only member. Uh, but, um, I had a team, I had a little, little ID card and, uh, I was home uh, from college and there was a, a newspaper 
for story that uh, out in a cornfield about 10 miles from my house, there was a crop circle. And I, I called up, uh, I called up my buddy, um, my buddy, uh, on the show, you hear his voice as Nelson Sanat when I need a different voice. But, uh, I, I called up Nelson and I said, we need to go check this out. We need to investigate. So I go to pick him up and he is wearing this sort of trench coat thing and he's wearing all black under it. And I'm wearing like, I, I'm dressed like sort of junior professor man. And, uh, he's built this device. That's like one of those old single slide projectors where you'd put just one slide in and it would just show not like a carousel, but just one slide. And then he taped like a metal rod to the end of it and had a black and Decker snake light, flexible flashlight duct tape to it. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, it's the paranormal energy detector. We're going to take some readings. And I'm like, Oh boy. <laughs> so we go out there and there's, there's a crowd milling around and, and you can see it and it's, it's a crop circle. It's not a super fancy one, but, but it's, it's a crop circle. And, um, there's some people around and Nelson starts looking through like the, the lens of this device and pointing it at the ditch and he's walking along the ditch and he's calling out numbers and I'm repeating the numbers very seriously into a handheld tape recorder. <laughs> and, um, and, and we're just, we're just being stupid, but everybody, everybody pretty much takes off. And then this, this old guy on an ATV comes up and, uh, he, he, says that you know you know what asks us what we know about it and who we are and we say oh we're, we're just taking a look at the crop circle and uh and he says you know they uh they say it's fake because they found a cigarette in the middle of it but uh <laughs> you know what you know why uh well that's not true and we're like why and he says that was my cigarette i was out here at four in the morning before anybody knew about this thing <laughs> and I, I, di- I didn't ask why are you in a cornfield or a wheat field at four in the morning smoking a cigarette? <laughs> but I was like, Oh, Oh, well that certainly lends veracity to the claims of its bizarre nature or something like that. And he's like, I got a stack of magazines at home, like three feet high, all about this stuff. I know all about this stuff and I know all about you guys too. <laughs> and we're like, do you? <laughs> and he says, I know, I know you're here. You're here to, you're here to cover it up. He said something like that. And we're like, no, no, we're just here goofing around. We're a couple of students and we had some time on our hands. He's like, sure, sure you are. Like, no, we are absolutely telling the truth. We are nobody. We are just here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I bet. And then he just drives off and, and we're like, well, he's got a story to tell his buddies down at the American Legion Hall or wherever <laughs> he goes. But uh, and then a, a van drives up, and 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 seriously, a bunch of filthy hippies get out. And um, <laughs> th- 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 this, no offense to any filthy hippies out there, but then take them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this woman gets out, and and she's 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 got. She's got the long hair, and she's got the round, lavender-tinged John Lennon glasses on. And and she looks like she's come from a costume party where you know you ever see those old ads from comic books where you can buy a hippie costume? That's how these people were dressed. It was like it was like a '60s comic book ad version of a hippie costume. Were they playing and fish in the band in the van? You, you know what? Um, was fish? They weren't. Blast, but, but I blasted out of it. There was a haze drifting out of the van <laughs> as, yep. as the door opened, and uh, so she's asking us questions, and 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 she she says, "Have you gotten any?" readings from inside of the circle 
and we realize that she thinks our little device is something real. And and we say, no, no, we haven't gone into the circle because there's police tape up and it would be trespassing. Because honestly, we didn't want to I – mean, this guy's field had been damaged enough, right? And, and we didn't want to go traipsing around. But uh, but she says, well, I, I took a, a college course about crop circles. And <laughs> I know that if you go inside, there's energy in inside and we were all going to go lay in the crop circle and absorb the energy and if you want i can take i can take your machine and get some readings for you and nelson just sort of blurts out well it's actually just a prototype we got the plans from headquarters this morning and we're not even sure if it works (laughs) (laughs) of course we got the prototype from headquarters and built it in our lab apparently so um we we bug out at that point and get out of there. And, uh, what's funny is, is, uh, I, I had my little tape recorder running in my pocket the whole time. So all of these conversations were recorded and a couple of weeks later, we played it for, for a group of friends, including who woman who I'm, I'm married to now. We, we just sort of knew each other vaguely at that point, but she remembers, you know, God, 22 years ago now sitting there and listening to this tape and the tape vanished. I have no oh, idea where it is. Uh. Um, yeah, it, it, it probably, um, I didn't label it because, Hey, it's a, it's a TDK brand 60 minute tape. You know, I'll always remember this tape except for the fact that it looks like 20 other tapes in the drawer. Right. Um, so I assume my parents threw it out at some point. Men in black came and got it. They, you know, I sometimes when, when I'm, feeling very strange sometimes i wonder if the tape ever existed at all or if any of it happened <laughs> and then i realized yeah yeah it did there's a news story about it and, um actually the crop circle was investigated by um a crop circle investigating organization if you go to um my show's website at saucerlife.com it's uh it's bonus encounter two or three it's it's further down the page and there's a link in the show notes to the the actual crop circle investigation report done by real investigators about the crop circle and there were some anomalies to the uh, the shape of the wheat kernels and, and things like that so it was uh you know officially able to be deemed strange by people who study crop circles but yeah that's the closest i've ever got to being um to either actually doing a paranormal investigation other than a couple of ghost hunts that the goat that this is just my luck or it's just me. Every time I've been on a ghost hunt, it's always been the places where they have never failed to have anything happen until I show up. And I guess I repel the ghosts or something, but, um, so yeah, I saw a crop circle. I, uh, a, a guy thought I was absolutely one of the bad guys, who are trying to uh, to cover things up. And you know what? This is how stories like this start. That guy tells a story to somebody about how a couple of young guys who were acting really strangely, dressed in really unseasonable clothes and not making any sense, were intimidating him at this crop circle. And it becomes, depending on who he tells and who they tell, it becomes part of the lore. But you know? An urban legend effect. It, yeah. it, yes. It, it You know, from telling and retelling and, you know... It, pretty soon it becomes my friend's grandpa was <laughs> shut up by the men in black. <laughs> the and infamous it, it just, men in tweed. The men in tweed. The uh, one man in black and, and, and one man who, who looked like he was, you know, doing some sort of weird 
academia cosplay or something. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I didn't have elbow patches though. I wish I would have had elbow oh. patches. That would have, that would have been perfect. But yeah, that's my, uh, my not quite a man in black. The question that I have is what college offers a course on crop circles? Yeah. I don't think any of them do. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> The only thing I can think is that she went to some sort of continuing ed session about crop circles that was an act that might have been held at the college but wasn't for college credit. Because I've, I've done a session like that called Weird Michigan for one of our community outreach days. Um, so I was thinking that's probably the sort of thing she did rather than – I. sometimes I'm tempted to – look through old newspapers from 20 some years ago and try to find out what exactly she did. But then I realized that's a huge waste of time, <laughs> but, but you know, I, it's like I'll spend, I'll spend the whole day looking at stuff like that. Sometimes I wonder if I can figure out where she took this seminar on crop circles in Northeast Indiana back in 19, whatever. So yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think it was, I hope it wasn't like a semester long exploration of crop circles. I would be, I would be asking questions of the authorities, the educational authorities in that case. <laughs> well, Aaron, thank you so much. Tell everybody thank where you. they can where they can get uh, listen to the podcast and also where they can find your books as well. Okay, well, you can listen to the podcast um, on any number of ways. You can go to the uh, the, the iTunes Store and search for the Saucer Life uh, there and subscribe. Um, it's on Google Play uh, podcasts. It's on Stitcher. Uh, and you can listen to the episodes to to download them or um, or stream them at uh, at the, the website, which is saucerlife.com. And uh, also on saucerlife.com, on the right-hand side, if you scroll down, there's links to the books I've written on Amazon, and uh, and, and you can get them that, that way. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, uh, just, yeah, saucerlife, one word. And, um, and that's generally where I am. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. Stay on the line with us. We're going to close out this section and guys, we'll be back to close out the show on conspiracy normal. <laughs> So it's all demons. Everything is demons. Everything is demons. Everything is demons. <laughs> as as Timothy Renner says. No, I, was, I was just talking to Surfail. Like, we went through that whole, uh, what was that, hour and 15, hour and a half with him. And I still don't know where he stands on the alien thing. He's so, like, so open to, like, all these different, um, yeah, you know, you know, angles and views on, on, on the subject itself. That Like, that that's hard to do in itself. I try to be that way. You know, Me cause, too. Because I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm not going to pretend I know what the hell's going on. I just, I want to hear, I want to hear everyone's kind of views and opinions and ideas on it. Yeah, more and more, that's how I am. I just want to know what exactly, uh, what happened and then what it may or may not mean. Yeah, right. And then also, too, what the individual thinks it is. 
You remember that show that we did uh, with Guy Malone and with uh, Michael Carter? Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yeah, it was one of the first ones I was uh, on. That was a good show because they both had similar experiences, but how they interpreted it was rather differently. What do you think, Sergio? Oh, it was real interesting. Uh, like I said, I've been listening to some of his shows, and uh, it was just a quick rundown of so much history and and kind of you could feel the development of the uh, of the phenomenon and pop culture, and really, you know, how it reflected the times and. It was it was really cool. Yeah, it was it it was a really good interview, and I'm definitely going to have Aaron back. I definitely want to get him back on to talk about the conspiracy theory book because I'm sure that there's a lot there. Um, Serfiel brought in a picture <laughs> of his own uh, quote unquote UFO encounter. Yeah, it's a picture I took in my backyard when I was 13. Maybe we can get a uh, scan of it, but it was a uh, it's your classic kind of uh, saucer disc. Uh-huh. Appears to be above the tree lines, and maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe you, you it is. Could, it is perfectly above the horizon. Yeah, like, yeah. Could, yeah. Uh, did it zip off real quick? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I was experiencing a lot of uh, <laughs> changes in uh, in in time and and space and perception. You know, I was, <laughs> I was new to that, so uh, I don't really recall. But maybe we can put it up, get a nice scan of it, and and mm-hmm. let let you all decide. What kind of camera was it? Was it hard to hold with one hand? Cheers. <laughs> no comment. Let's let's have the, let's have the audience decide. We got to get that scan. Get that scan for us, and I'll put that up on the conspiratorial Facebook we'll do, page. We'll, do. we'll we'll see what uh, we'll see what people think. I got one more story before we call it a night. It's interesting that we all kind of uh, we all brought up flat Earth recently. Because uh, this is something in the news. That flat earther finally took off in his DIY rocket to prove we're all idiots. <laughs> his next mission, running for governor. A few months back, Mad Mike Hughes, a 61-year-old limo driver, amateur rocket scientist, <laughs> and devout flat earther, vowed to strap himself into a homemade spaceship and blast off into the skies to prove our planet is shaped like a pancake. He scheduled the launch for last November, but given that his mission was kind of illegal and borderline suicidal, <laughs> it kept getting pushed back. On Saturday, he finally rocketed himself into the air above the Mojave Desert in Amboy, California, the Associated Press reports. Miraculously, he's still alive. At about 2.30 p.m., he clambered into a rocket emblazoned with the words, Flat Earth, buckled himself in and pulled on his helmet. After a buddy helped him close the hatch above his head, his ship rigged to a bootleg missile launching system that looked a little like a carnival ride, prepped for takeoff. Then with no countdown or warning whatsoever, he shot up into the heavens, flying 1,875 feet into the air at about 350 miles per hour. (laughs) (laughs) As you can see in the profanity-laden video above, once Hughes reached his maximum altitude, his rocket did a little 180 and started careening toward the center of our definitely round planet. Barreling toward certain death, he deployed a parachute, which left him gently swaying back to the desert. Still, he was coming in too hot, and just before he slammed into the ground, he pulled a second chute. Hughes was carted off in an ambulance after he touched down, AP reports. Somehow, he managed to avoid any serious injuries. Am I glad I did it? Yeah, I guess, he told AP. I'll feel it in the morning. I won't be able to get out of bed. At least I can go home and have dinner and see my cats tonight. 
He didn't say what kind of look he got at our planet, but 2,000 feet off the ground isn't quite high enough to get an ISS-style view of the Earth. Sadly, Hughes and his fellow flat earthers are no closer to proving their theory, especially considering, you know, gravity. Do I believe the Earth is shaped like a Frisbee? I believe it is, he told the LA Times. Do I know for sure? No. That's why I want to go up in space. <laughs> Along with a renewed appreciation for his pets, his close call with death apparently got him thinking about his future. He told the AP his next step is to run for governor of California, seeing as he might have a better shot making a bid for public office. You know what? I'm just going to... Be completely honest here. I have nothing but respect for anyone who refers to themselves as an amateur rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> or a amateur rocket rider, for, yeah. that, for that matter. Right? Yeah. So his plan was to get up high enough that he would... Definitely prove that the Earth was flat. <laughs> wow. There's been some speculation about this guy. Some people think that he just he's just doing this because he's... He's he's hopping on the bandwagon of the flat earth just to get some attention. Because he's apparently like a carnival. He's like a carny kind of guy and that's and a pretty dangerous elaborate stunt to get yeah, that's true. <laughs> to cover I mean, election. <laughs> he barely survived from what it sounds like. Well at least he got to hang out with his cats later on. So at least he had a backup parachute. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. That's the uh that's the latest news on the flat earth front. Oh, so I guess that's it. Um, Rob, tell everybody about where they can go to Patreon, which we haven't put anything up, but you know, there's other things there, so you can find it. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, we got lots of bonus episodes up there. We're going to release some more soon. Uh, thank you to all of our current patrons, first of all, and for your patience and for your devotion. We love you all. Um, you can find us at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. There's uh, several wallpapers. There's lots of bonus episodes. There's going to be more coming soon. There's various tiers you can uh, subscribe to to help support the show. And if you don't want to subscribe to something where there's a monthly payment, we understand because I hate those things too. Uh, you can go to our website and do a one-time donation, or you can just give us a nice uh, five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show, and that means a lot to us as well. And please, guys, become a Patreon or a donator because Rob needs more Jameson. I do. I'm almost out. Yeah. So, yeah, he's got his tuck up in a supply. <laughs> Serfiel, thank you for being here with us tonight. Thanks again. Asking good questions as always. Great show. Thanks thank for knowing you. more than me as always. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rob, you know a lot, man. Come on. No, I'm serious. Like, I, <laughs> and we've got the Bigfoot collar up here. Um, somebody gave me a Bigfoot collar. Yeah. So we can we can now effectively call big. There's a warning on the package, the like <laughs> careful if you don't want to, if you don't want to, uh, if you don't want Bigfoot coming and harassing you, don't blow this whistle. <laughs> wow! So that gets me pretty excited. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, special thanks to Aaron, Aaron Gullius for joining us and Luke, wherever the hell Luke is. I don't know. He's probably dead in a ditch somewhere. Doing some crazy guys. Luke shit. So you know. Who knows? All right, guys, join us next time. Uh, we'll be taking a little bit of a two-week break, but we'll be back on the flip side. And join us next time on Conspiranormal. Chucka Chucka Chee.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.